Welcome to episode two of my Culty College. My name is Amber Viola, and I'm your host. But in this episode, I will be sharing my story about my experience with my Culty College. Um, this is uh, something I've never really shared at all <laughs> with most anybody. Um, it's a hard story for me to tell. Uh, there's a lot of things that I honestly don't remember from this time period because I think that I just blacked a lot of it out. Um, a lot of it was pretty traumatic for me. So there's a lot of parts of it where I just don't even go there, I guess you would say. Um, so I guess I'd start off by saying, you know, what kind of is Master's Commission? So it was a discipleship college that was a few years. So you had, you could go for one year, you could go for two years, and then three years was almost like you were um, like support staff. And then you could eventually be hired on to work there. So most people would go for one year and it was basically a discipleship program to give your life to God and to devote your life to getting closer to God and to take out all the distractions. So you take out, you know, secular music, uh, rated R movies, dating, um, relationships with the opposite sex, and your focus is on doing ministry work and, you know, getting your life together and becoming closer to God. So I had heard about it through my best friend, um, Chelsea. She had learned about it in school. They had come to her school and done a little like presentation thing um, for the kids. And she fell in love with the place. So when we got back together, both of us were army brats, little short story and story. Both of us were army brats, so we moved around a lot. So there was a lot of our lives where we were apart and then would end up coming back together and we'd go back to the same schools because both of our parents would get stationed in a similar area again. So um, a time she came back, we were in school together and she would, you know, rant and rave about this place and how she really wanted to go. Um, I didn't want to go there. Really, <laughs> I had gone to college for a year and I loved it, but I was very broke. Um, and my parents had basically told me that if they were going to pay for me to go to school, that they wanted me to go to master's commission. They wanted me to go with my friends and they wanted me to have a better relationship with God. Um, <clears throat> So I didn't want to go. So when we got there, I cried the whole first day. I cried. I sobbed like my eyes out. I cried so hard because I didn't want to go. And I think my mom thought, I don't know what she actually thought about me crying the whole time that I was there, but I did. And um, so kind of right off the bat when I was there, the vibe was was off, you know, Um I, people were very weird <laughs> towards me and to me just in general, you know, um, there definitely was a culture shock for me 
with moving from the East Coast to being in the Midwest. I'd never been in the Midwest before, and it is very different. So me being a very direct, straightforward, um, loud, you know, boisterous person was not ready for their very passive aggressive, quiet, you know, ness that they had. So for me, I really just wasn't used to that. So people thought I was rude and people thought I was mean and um, people thought I had a bad attitude and things like that. And I mean, I could be happy as a clam sitting somewhere and, you know, would have somebody come over and be like, you know, oh, why are you so angry? Like, what are you upset about? And I'd be like, what are you talking about? I'm not, I'm not angry. I'm just sitting here. I have resting bitch face. Now we know what that is. Then you know, we, we really didn't know what that is. So, you know, the people that end up at master's kids at master's are kids who were, um, you know, church kids, um, a lot of kids who grew up in church. So they heard about it through their youth group or through somebody who had gone there, or if masters had come there, um, you had a lot of homeschooled kids. Um, you had pastors, kids, uh, you had kids who were troubled, um, who had, we had kids that had drug problems, um, and their parents were looking to send them somewhere to help them. Um, we had a lot of gay people who were looking to be fixed, you know, who were looking to be delivered and who wanted to have a relationship with God, wanted to maybe even go in, into ministry, you know, but they were gay. Um, and they were trying, you know, but they went through a whole nother separate, you know, host of issues and stuff like that, you know. Um, so, you know, when our first week there, you know, they call it like hell week and stuff like that. And so you're not sleeping, you're not really eating and stuff. You're doing very annoying tasks um, for 24 hours. We, I remember we were locked in this like warehouse and we had to play the cup game and it, we were there for like a day and it was horrible. And I just remember wanting to get out so bad and being also being hot. And, you know, they were doing things to like break you down and build you back up and they would tell you this, you know, um, but it, it was like not in a good, in a good way, you know, so you're, you're paying money to go here. And then since you're not working and you're basically kind of like an intern, um, for this place, you know, they're giving you now like $20 a week to pay for food. It's supposed to be enough to, to be able to buy food. And if you drove gas money or, um, you know, whatever, and it, it really wasn't. So, you were not eating and you weren't eating well, you know, and there was times where you would be doing something for hours and hours on end and you wouldn't get a break and you wouldn't be able to kind of stop and eat and, and be able to do things like that. And, you know, you didn't have enough money to buy anything healthy, you know, or heaven forbid you had any type of food allergy or something and needed to buy anything special. Um, and, you know, I remember my best friend saying that she, she, she was eating a bell pepper and I was looking at her like, what are you doing? And she was eating a bell pepper because she was like, dude, this is the first green thing we've had in my house. And I haven't had like a vegetable for months. She's just eating it. And I was like, okay. And, you know, and, and this is kind of the stuff that you were just 
going through. And if you didn't have a good attitude all the time, you know, then you were talked to and, you know, and nothing, it was never, a, nothing was ever a valid excuse or, or really a valid reason. Um, while I was there, I had a, a cyst on my tailbone and I had gotten an operation on it. So like we had a couple of crazy long days and I was in the car with my roommate and we're driving down the street and we're close to the house. And I was like, man, you know, my, my butt hurts really bad. And I'm like, I think I'm going to go to the hospital tomorrow. Like if it doesn't stop hurting, I'm going to go to the hospital tomorrow because like, I'm actually in a lot of pain. I can't sit down. And she whips the car around in the middle of the road and like, you know, drives me straight to the hospital. And so, you know, we get there and they, they take me back and they have me on a table. Um, they cut me open and somebody was supposed to come back to like clean me up and stuff. And nobody did at all, actually. Um, so that was terrifying. And I laid there, my roommate ended up having to clean me up and, you know, um, get me together and, and get me back home. And then when I got home, I was just in a lot of pain. And, and I remember they gave me some painkillers and I, I was, I slept and I passed out. And I remember not waking up in time, um, for like school the next day, what we, we called it school, you know, and they, you know, came looking for me. My roommates let me sleep. Cause they knew like, you know, I was obviously in the hospital and like all that stuff. And I remember getting in trouble for that. And it was like, you, you know, there was never an excuse that was good enough or anything. It was always, um, you know, something wrong. Like in that case, it was no like, hey, you're sick. You had a little minor surgery on your butt and, you know, and things like that. And it was just so terrible. So when I ended up going home for Christmas break, I actually needed to get like the full surgery on my tailbone and get my whole cyst removed, like cut out of my body. And so I did that and I laid on my stomach for like a month because it had to heal from the inside out. And it was extremely painful. And I remember getting so much pressure from them to come back. And I shouldn't have went back when I did, you know, I mean, obviously now I look back, I shouldn't have went back at all. But at that time, I should not have gone back because I was not healed yet. And I wasn't ready to go back. But instead of them, you know, being understanding and kind, it was like, no, like, you need to come back now, you need to come back and, um, and didn't really care why, you know, and I ended up having to fly back home and not driving. So once I got there, I didn't have my car, which really then, you know, put me at a disadvantage and, and really just made me feel very trapped because I, I had no freedom on my own because I didn't have my car. And I just remember being in so much pain coming back and literally having to like beg them to not go and like work this after school program because I literally had a hole in my butt, you know, and, and just how hard that was for me. And instead of people being compassionate about it, you know, I was told that I had, you know, unchecked sin, that I had sin in my life and that the devil was in there somewhere. And that's why I was sick. And that's why I was getting sick. 
and I, I wouldn't get healed until, you know, I fixed that sin and I, you know, and I fixed those things. And um, I just, I was so depressed um, when I was there because I just felt like I was never good enough. Nothing I ever did was ever good enough. Um, and nobody liked me, you know, and I, I came from a place where I had a lot of friends and a, you know, great support system and coming there to where people would just assume the worst about me. And also people thought I was from like the inner city, like the ghetto and from Philly. And it was just so ridiculous, ridiculous. They had all of these assumptions about me that were not true at all. And there were so many times where I'd end up getting, you know, stuck on some project. Like I remember having to like dig a trench or something for the church. And I was on there with somebody that I didn't know and we're talking and everything and, you know, just getting to know each other, passing the time and stuff. And they're like, wow, you know, you're so different than I thought you would be. And I heard that so many times while I was there and it was just to the point where it was like, that's not a compliment. I don't know what you think that is, but it's, it's really not, you know, so there were just so many things that just really, um, weren't really right. And I had a lot of friends who were there who were gay that got kicked out. Um, and then I had other friends, um, in a previous episode, I had Amanda Murdoch on, she was one of my friends and she was kicked out and, and another friend of ours, Ashley and everything. So like, there was so many people that I did have around that ended up getting, um, getting kicked out. So, you know, every day we would wake up and in the mornings, the first thing you had was prayer. And then we would have different classes that we would take. Um, you know, a, a lot of times you are split off between men and women and, we would have girls class and the guys would have guys class. And basically you were taught how to be a vulnerable, chaste woman who was waiting for her knight to come and rescue her and save her. And that you needed to be meek and humble and look for your husband. Um, yeah. And, and I hated that. Um, so that was a lot of it. We had other classes where, um, you know, we would learn different things on Wednesdays. We had chapel where either like our director or one of the instructors would teach, or maybe somebody from the church would come in and preach and things like that. And, you know, in afternoons we would have where you would go and work on your ministry so the people that went around to schools and traveled and did things, they would go work on their skits and um, whatever they would do there. Um, as I mentioned before, I would go to an after-school program. Um, I started a, actually started a program in a juvenile detention center. And, you know, that's why it's so strange talking about this and and sharing this with people because there were so many things that were really good. You know, I was able to do this ministry at this juvenile detention center and it was a male center and we would go in and we would sing songs for them because they didn't get, have access to anything. So they liked when we would sing. 
um and we would get like lead bible studies and talk to them but for the most part we really would just want to talk and hang out with them um some of them were aging out of the juvenile system and were going to like prison and i remember how scared some of them were and how scared i was for some of them um who were gonna be off to do this and I loved the access that I had to those kids and that I was able to go in there and that I was able to do that. Um, and that was something that was truly amazing. And the, the funny part about it was they had somebody who they wanted to start this ministry there, but they didn't really have anybody to do it. Um, and so it kind of got thrown at me in a way of like, see what you can do with this. and it was because nobody else wanted it. And I knew that and I took it and I was like, oh, I'm gonna make this the best shit ever. You know, that like, this is gonna be the best thing. Um, and I did, and I, I was super proud of that. And then, and the people that I worked on that were, were really great people. So like, that was something that was amazing, you know, but other parts of it that weren't amazing were, you know, um, I remember my second year there, there was this guy who wanted to date me and he went and talked to one of the staff members and they were like, yeah, don't date her. Like, we don't think she has a strong enough relationship with God. And mind you, this person had never spoken to me before, ever. Like, never talked to me, never, you know, had a conversation with me. And these were all based on just assumptions and, you know, stereotypes and I remember going in and talking to him and asking him about it and he looked shocked and it was really funny because he definitely was not expecting me to come like confront him like that and he said to me well I don't see any fruit of your relationship like you're not involved in anything and I looked at him and I was like I'm not no able to like nobody ever picks me to be involved in anything i'll volunteer for stuff and i'm not given anything and like i just said i was given the juvenile detention center because nobody else wanted it but before that i didn't have any ministry that i was personally really doing or a part of or that was mine because i never had the opportunity to do it there were things you know i wanted to sing and be on the worship team I wanted to travel and do different things and all those things I wasn't ever chosen or able to do but then at the same time it was almost like then you're punished for not doing any of those things and I just felt so defeated in that moment because I was like I want to do things and I'm not given the opportunity and now I'm being punished for not doing those things and you know there was just so many times that I would be talked to about different things and, you know, and told that, you know, if I don't get myself right with the Lord that I'm going to go to hell or, you know, um, I was told that like my family wasn't that great and that I shouldn't talk to them so much, you know, and that I needed to like distance myself from my family and things like that and you know and it's like you're told these things and then you think that these people are 
leaders over you. You know, they're telling you that that you're their disciple, that they're over you, that God placed them over you, and that you need to listen to them. And if you did not listen to them, then you were not just being disobedient to them, but that you were also being disobedient to God as well, you know, and it went through all of these things. And like people would then tell if you were doing something that was considered any type of disobedience against anyone, there was no trust anywhere, you know, in, in any, anywhere and there was no safe place because you always felt like somebody was always watching you and somebody was always going to go and snitch on you about something that probably wasn't even a real thing that you were doing, you know, whether you were at home or whether you were actually in the church, you know, and while you were there, you could live in one or two places. You could either live in the dorms which were apartments, or you could live in with a family. And it was cheaper to go there if you made the decision to live with the family. So families who were members of the church there would open up their homes to students from this program and let them live with them for the nine months that they were there. So those people lived with what we called a home opener and other people lived in the apartments. I lived in the apartments and I had roommates and things like that. And, um, you know, and one of my roommates ended up dying in a car accident that was really horrific and very, very traumatic for, for me. Um, I know that it was traumatic for, for other people. Um, and I don't really want to speak to other people's experiences who were there, you know, but, um, you know, one of our other roommates wanted to move out because, it was just too hard for her to be there. And it was just devastating the way that it was handled because it just, it really wasn't handled that well. Um, We were told with the rest of everyone else and weren't told separately, like as a house, you know, we weren't really offered any counseling or therapy after to, to really deal with it and to really deal with you know, how we felt or given the opportunity maybe to move to a different apartment or something, you know, I don't know. Um, I wanted to go home. Like, honestly, um, the girls in my house, we really wanted a break and I asked to go home and they told me that I couldn't go home. Um, and I remember another time I had asked to go home because my mom wanted me to do something in the house. Um, and it needed to be done and nobody was living there because my family was living overseas at the time. And so when I had asked to go do it, like they told me no. And I just remember being like so confused and annoyed. And I remember telling my mom and she kind of was like, so like, just go and, you know, just go and do it um, because I need you to do this thing. And I, I just remember being, feeling so torn between oh, my mom needs me to do this. And like, oh, but the school is telling me that I can't go and, you know, that that I need to to be here and things. Um, yeah, so that was just, you know, so that was just such a crazy experience. So I started to just feel so alone. And with my roommate dying and different things, I just, I felt so isolated from everyone and from everything. Um you know, and everything just seemed to be so much harder. 
after that. And I just didn't really know who to talk to because you want to talk to people who are there, who are going through it and experiencing it. But at the same time, as I said before, a lot of people were snitches. So there were definitely times I had tried to talk to people about things and that would get out or, and it would get twisted and turned into something, you know, that it wasn't. And it would be so devastating all the time. And I was never the type of person who had a low self-esteem. Um, but I just remember feeling so low about myself and so defeated all the time. And when I look through my journals and read, you know, it's all saying how I'm worthless and I'm so unworthy and I can't do anything and I need God for everything just to breathe and just to do, which like maybe sounds okay, but when it's taken literally by all these kids, you know, young people who are 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, those things are being taken literally. So you're literally asking for everything. Like, can I do this? Can I do that? Any decision that you're making, so you feel so unsure about yourself and so unsure about your decision-making capabilities in any aspect because you're so beaten down at this point, you know? So you just are questioning yourself. And I had never been in a place where I felt that before, you know? So then if you're not hearing answers, you know, or you feel like you're not getting answers, somehow that means that you're doing it wrong, that it, you know, that it's about you because for some reason if you are really a christian and you are really close to god then you would be getting an answer then you would have answers to your issues and to your problems and if you're not then that's why you know the reason that i was sick was because there you know i had things blocking me from getting my healing that i needed to deal with in my life and when those things weren't done you know then um then it wasn't um, you know, <laughs> that it wasn't done. And, um, so after my first year, I, um, ended up staying there over the summer because they thought it wasn't a good idea for me to go home because they said I didn't have a good support system. So I stayed there over the summer and I worked at the church and, um, I remember, working at a summer camp for the church over the summer because I was there and this I was so excited to do it because I had been a camp counselor before and I remember it being fun and I, I loved camp growing up and when from the moment we were there I just was like this is not the vibe um the one of the first things we had to do was go through the girls suitcase and have them put on their clothes and basically inspect them and let them know if they could wear them or they couldn't wear them. So as I'm standing there looking at these girls, just like feeling absolutely disgusting about myself, truly, to be honest, um, because I'm sitting here telling, you know, 11 year old girl that their shorts are too short and they can't cause their brother to stumble. And instead of telling, instead of telling guys not to be creeps and don't rape and don't think dirty things, I'm sitting here telling an 11-year-old girl that her shorts are too short and, or that her 
um, tank top is spaghetti strapped and she can't wear it. So I just like, I don't know y'all. I don't know what I was thinking it was going to be. Okay. I don't, <laughs> but I didn't think it was going to be that. So kind of from like that, I already, I already really had a disgusting taste in my mouth. And there was a girl who, <coughs> excuse me, had, didn't really have anything that was appropriate. So she was wearing what she had. And I remember getting pulled to the side and talked to about it. And I was just like, she doesn't have anything. Like, I don't know what you want me to do, you know? Um, and her feeling shame for it. I remember a girl feeling shamed for having a two piece and not having a one piece. And she had to wear a shirt over it. Um, so she just didn't end up going swimming. And, um, obviously it was a, a Christian camp. And I just remember at night sitting, not being a camper. So not being involved in this and kind of sitting in the back, watching these, um, church services. And I don't know if any of you have seen the documentary called Jesus camp, but literally that, that is where I was. That That is it. 100%. That is exactly what it was. And I remember sitting in the back, listening to them give these sermons and calling these kids forward and just, you know, making them feel like they were just so sinful and so bad. And like, you know, you had to come forward and you had to repent and you had to get saved. And just sitting there and, and feeling like it was really gross. And never have felt like that before. Never have had that feeling of, this is gross. I've been in camps my whole life. I'd been a camp counselor before, and these were all Christian religious camps. And I had never sat there from the outside and looked in and been like, I don't like this, you know, and calling out things. And I don't know, just to, to me, like, manipulating the room, manipulating the environment, and it, it was kids, and pressuring them into basically going up there and, and performing, you know, um, and if you weren't the ones to really do that, then getting kind of shamed, you know, for the people sitting down, and for the people not raising their hands, and the people not on their knees praying, you know, oh, they, they're, you know, they want to be cool for their friends, or maybe they have a bad day. I don't know, you know, whichever, whichever one really, but, and just not really liking it. So I went and I was walking around the camp and everything was closed. It was dark. I was just roaming around and I started seeing these signs that said like, pray the gay away. And I'm like, Amber, what the fuck? There's no way. I realize I'm on the other side of the camp. So now I'm on like a different part of the property, which was a conversion camp. And I started seeing these posters, but you know, um, God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, obviously the pray the gay away. There was another one where it was like Jesus standing behind this guy and he had on this like tight shirt and like a choker. So I guess the choker was what made him gay in this picture. Um, it was very, the picture was very homoerotic. 
and looking at it and being like, what am I doing here? Like, what am I actually, what am I actually doing? Um, and kind of then honestly not giving a shit the whole rest of the camp. Like I let my campers do whatever. I told them what they needed to know so they weren't getting in trouble and we were where we needed to be or whatever. But like, you know what I mean? If they didn't want to do something, yeah, come sit by me. We're not doing it. Like I'm, you know, my, my give a fuck was then broken and I just didn't care anymore because I, I didn't know that was happening there. And I also didn't know how directly involved with that I was. And I think for me, that kind of was the realization of like, I really don't think I want to be a, a part of this anymore, but I'm so a part of it. And also, is this the devil telling me that I don't want to be a part of it? So I will have more of my story when we get back. Seventy-two Hours of Hell, My Time in the VA is out now on Amazon. This short story is about my time being in the Veterans Affairs Hospital on a voluntary 72-hour hold. This journey through involuntary hold was marked by humiliation, broken promises, and a profound sense of vulnerability. My path towards seeking help was extremely challenging. Despite the setbacks faced, I hope my journey will lead other veterans and anyone else facing mental health issues to the care and support they might desperately require. 72 Hours of Hell, My Time in a VA is available now on Amazon Kindle. Hello and welcome back. So before I get into what happened the second year that I was at RMC, <clears throat> which is Rockford Master's Commission, I want to talk about what kind of the roles of everybody were when we were there. So during your first year there, um, you have to apply and you're accepted. You go through an application process. And if you're accepted, you go. And that first year, like I said, the rules are very strict. You're in a discipleship program and you're not allowed to date or watch rated R movies or listen to secular music or have any close relationships with the opposite sex. During your second year, you are able to date. You're able to watch movies. You're able to listen to music. Um, a lot of people still choose to not do any of those things. It kind of becomes this dick measuring contest, to be honest. Um, and so sometimes there was a lack of sincerity for really doing it. But as a second year, you were directly over the first years and you kind of were over the small groups and like any activities that you guys did. Um, <clears throat> each person was put into this thing called an AC family, which was like a small little group that you were with twice a week. And those people you did a lot of different activities with and stuff like that. And so at the second year, you were involved with that. In your first year, you were involved with that as well. Um, by the time a person gets to their third year, this is when <clears throat> they would start to teach classes and to lead big groups and big activities. And they would be overall in charge of like 
a ministry and different things that you had. So for me, working with the juvenile detention center, there was a third year who was quote unquote over me and supervised me in that role. <clears throat> then you had your fourth year, which was support staff members who were working there. And those people would work directly underneath staff members and help staff members and run different programs and things. Then you had the actual people who were on the staff who worked there and these people led, you know, the led chapel, um, they led a lot of the, the big services and big ministry stuff that we did. And they had support staff and third years underneath them who assisted them with things. And then you had our pastor <clears throat> who was over the whole master's program and he was over all the staff members. And I believe while I was there too, he then became head of the church as well. So it was a program to where they tried to make the acceptance process a lot like the college acceptance process. So there were people who were not accepted back. And I'm gonna talk to a, a guy who wasn't accepted back to the program and actually we're gonna hear his story, but when you don't get accepted back, it's kind of this very weird area that it seems to leave people in. I remember I actually had a car that I got in a car accident while I was there and um, I sold it to a girl who was there who wasn't accepted back. And she stayed around the church and kind of would try to like help out and hang out with people and stuff like that but nobody would really talk to her and everybody treated her as though she was like really, really weird and strange and actually kind of a loser for staying around to hang out. And talking to this other kid now who kind of was in the same boat as her, just hearing it from a different side just kind of gives me a completely different perspective in it. Um, but a lot of people that weren't accepted back were really, really devastated by it. Um, a lot of people didn't know what to do with their lives and would kind of put all their eggs in one basket because as you're applying for this, a lot of people are doing this instead of going to college for whatever reasons. There's a host of reasons why people didn't go. Um, and then a lot of people wanted to go into ministry to be youth pastors, children's pastors, um, worship leaders to lead a church so this was a way for them to kind of do that so the people that weren't accepted back kind of had to reevaluate their situation in their life and there was a lot of people who were left very lost and didn't know what to do and the side of that that i think is really unhealthy is that when you're not there people don't talk to you and it's looked at as like well god didn't have you back for a reason and that reason's probably bad. And so you don't need to hang out with this person and you don't need to talk to this person. So those people went from having this family around you all the time, these people around you that you're hanging out with and you're living with and stuff <clears throat> to being complete, completely isolated and kind of um, shunned and ostracized. And, you know, that was such a, a terrible place to be in for people. Um, also one of kind of the big focuses that we had there were missions and the missions trip. So each year you were there, you would take a missions trip. And there was 
a couple, say there was like 10 and you could pick, you know, your top three that you wanted to go through and they would select who was going um, <clears throat> on these trips and things like that. And I went to Morocco because I love the Middle East and um, always had wanted to go. And what was interesting to me was so much of the information that we had about the Middle East was so out of date and out of touch. And it came from a very, very racist white nationalist perspective of the people and kind of the country, you know, and <clears throat> even just from what I have learned and studied about the Middle East, I knew some of those things to not really be true. Um, <laughs> so, for example, like all the guys who were going on this trip with us, they all grew out these enormous beards to fit in because they thought that that's what everybody was going to look like. And we get there and like nobody has a beard. And so um, they end up shaving their beards or whatever. And I just remember there was a lot of like focus on, you know, not looking at the, the sole of somebody's foot because that was disrespectful and like just so many things that maybe at one point were traditions and do have meaning to people. But a lot of it was silly things to me that weren't the things that you need to be if you're going to be like culturally ready to go to a place and teaching people that basically like these people are evil and you know Muslims and forced to be Muslims and it's up to us to be able to over to go over there and like spread the gospel to them and and save their lives and stuff like somehow our lives were just so much better than theirs you know um <clears throat> I remember coming home and you know talking about the trip and stuff and like even before we got home and people were like oh I'm just so blessed for the things that I have you know and it's like what do you have that was so much better than theirs besides just like the style of things you know like the houses were different that doesn't make their house less than it just makes it different you know um we went to the bath house that was one of my favorite things i that's uh morocco is one of the best places i've ever been they have amazing food the bath house experience was absolutely amazing and hilarious because a lot of them had never seen a white person before so they were just staring at our group and you're in this place it almost looks like a cave on the inside and there's a whole bunch of rooms and as you get closer and closer to the the center of the building is the hottest room so the outsides are cooler a lot of women with their kids are out there and you can go further further in and get the hotter it gets and you can have them like scrub your whole body you can pay somebody to come so we had people come and, and scrub our bodies so a lot of the girls were mad because their tans got scrubbed off um <laughs> but that's the cleanest i've ever been in my life you know you go there you spend a couple hours there and they do that you know once a week and things like that and and people have this idea that somehow because we live in a house that has a shower and, and water that we're better off or we're more blessed than they are, you know, when act in actuality, it's, it's just different. <clears throat> and um, so, I mean, there's so many things wrong with missions, but, um, you know, another aspect of it is the raising money. You know, you're raising all this money to go across the world 
to tell people that they're living wrong, you know, when that money could be spent here in America on things that we really need. But um, you're raising money and they'll, you know, they're going to, they're going to try to teach you how to raise money and how to ask for money and things. And it, it just came from such a privileged <clears throat> stance. You know, it never took into consideration poverty or, or that people maybe didn't have people around them who they could ask money for or church family or whatever, you know, cause they're telling you, okay, ask, go to your church, ask your church, you know, ask them for you to be able to go up in front and ask for a special offering for, for your missions trip, you know, write letters to your friends and family, um, ask family members for money instead of gifts for the holidays or for your birthday, you know, ask instead of a graduation present, ask for money. Um, and, you know, all of those things, I think, just never really took into consideration the people that didn't have the money to do that. And if people really, really struggled to raise money and people were really made to feel very, very bad. I had a friend who was struggling to even just pay to be there. And I remember talking to her after coming from a meeting where she was just in tears. And I was like, you know, I'm doing what happened. And she was just berated for basically not having the money for her missions trip and how she's not allowing God to use her because she's lazy for not doing more to be able to raise the money. There was even people that rented themselves out to people in the church um and able to ra- in in order to be able to raise money now you can take with that as <laughs> as you see fit i thought it was very strange i did not do it um you know for me it wasn't even the the renting yourself out like slavery aspect of it it was more just uh no like i don't know what you're going to have me do and there and some stuff happened and um you know i had heard interesting stories about people having to do things for people being rented out whether it was ended up turning into some weird sexual thing where somebody's doing yard work in their underwear by the end of it or it turned into somebody actually just working some poor child to the bone you know for little to no money because the thing about it too as well is I don't I don't remember if there was like a set amount and um and they might have ended up having to change it because something happened but like people could just give you ten dollars for you know working in their yard all day on their farm and we're in Illinois so like if somebody says cut my grass you know that's not just going to cut a little lawn you know you might be doing a lot when when you're there doing things like that. So um, <clears throat> that was just really, really weird. And, you know, people were kicked out for not having the money, um, for not being able to raise the money, for not being able to raise the tuition. When you're there, you're not allowed to work. There were people who did get special permission to, like, be able to um, – work say uh go work for a month and come back or something like that um you know they would encourage you and and again this was a very privileged thing 
they would encourage you to go back home over Christmas break and, you know, and work the same job that you were working over the summer. Like where, where are people able to just like really do that, you know, on that scale? Like you leave Taco Bell to go to school most of the time your job is going to be filled when you come back. It's not necessarily going to be, you know, that easy. And it's, and, and it's not always that easy to come back and get a job over the break because those jobs are normally filled by the time we would get home. And, you know, just dealing with kind of the, the guilt and, and the repercussions of that and, and the feelings of that. And, and, you know, so there was a lot of, a lot of pressure put on you financially for not being able to have a job, you know? So when I was in going into my second year, you know, I knew that I didn't want to be there. I didn't know how to get out of it. And I didn't know how to separate it from myself. I didn't know how to say like, I don't want to do this, but also not believe that I was going to like go to hell. Uh, so I, I was so afraid of the consequences that I kind of just stayed in an abusive relationship, you know, um, because I was always told that I was the person with the attitude and, you know, different things. I was given, you know, special projects and, and special people, the ones with an attitude. And there was one particular girl who, you know, they would just have me berate her. And, and I feel so guilty about that and about the things that I said to her and about the way that I treated her and about the way that I broke her down, you know, and a lot of it was out of fear for her because I didn't want her to have to go through like the same ridicule that I did so in my head it was like dude just conform so that like you don't get bitched at you know what i mean and and that's kind of the way that i was coming from it to try to protect her but also then you know be faced with like oh amber why isn't your progeny like listening or doing this or she failed a test or whatever and so now I'm being berated and shit is rolling downhill, you know, and they're looking at me as like, well, you're not a real leader, you know, and you need to check yourself with God because you're not leading her right or you're not doing whatever because she's not doing X, Y, and Z, you know, and I would have to like report back to them on things and, and I would have to tell them things that she told me you know, about herself that I didn't feel like they really needed to know, but they would want to know those things and they would want me to tell them. And I mean, I would have to tell her about her weight and the way that she dressed and the way that she did her hair. And they had huge problems with the way she did her hair, which was a huge microaggression. I thought her hair was lovely and she did the shit out of her hair, y'all. Like she could do so much with her hair it would look like it was done all the time professionally and also I mean we were poor so like she really she was doing the thing and you know I still think about to this day kind of what what I would say if I talked to her you know 
what how I would want to apologize. And you know, your what happens with cults and what happens just in any type of crappy situation is that eventually people will now turn you into a little them and have you doing the things that they were doing so that one, you're all complicit in it. Um, and two, to make you believe it even more and make you feel empowered. You know, we were empowered to tear these other people down and we were empowered to, you know, destroy people about things that, you know, I'm destroying somebody about their weight and telling them that they have a gluttony problem and that gluttony is a sin, but yeah, we're giving people $20 a week to eat. So what do you, what do you think people are eating? They're eating Kraft mac and cheese and they're eating hot dogs. Like what, what do you, it's not making sense because it's not adding up. You know, I can't berate somebody on something that they, they can't help at the end of the day, you know? Um, and for both of us being black women and being opinionated black women, you know, that was something that was also very hard because there was a lot of microaggressions. And I think for me, and I don't want to speak for her, like I didn't even know what that really was. I knew that it wasn't good. I knew that I didn't like it. I just didn't have a name for it of, of, you know, what to, um, of what to really call it. So I didn't even make it through my whole second year because I ended up getting kicked out. Um, and I basically got kicked out for um, emailing back and forth with another student who was a guy and he was a first year. And there was nothing inappropriate about the emails. It was nothing sexual. It was nothing like anything like that. We went to we're in the same group in louisiana and um just became friends um i felt so isolated and alone and like i did not have any friends at all and so for me it was just like a friend um i know that i he had a crush on me but i it wasn't like that serious at least in my head um but he ended up getting, um, now I want, we were told one thing that of what happened with him and, and what he got in trouble for. And honestly, now looking back, I don't even know if that's true, you know, and, and I don't want to sully somebody's name by telling a story that I'm not even sure if that's even how it happened. But what did happen was they, he ended up giving them his passwords. He was threatened into giving them him his passwords to all his stuff and everything. And I feel like they basically told him like, if you don't do this, you're going to get kicked out. And he did it and they kicked him out anyway. But when they did that, they saw the, that we were emailing each other and they called me in and there was a bunch of staff members and the pastor was there and none of the people that I was close to were allowed to be there because I asked them afterwards, like, why weren't you there? And they were like, I was told I couldn't be there. Um, there was another staff member that I was close to that said that they didn't even know it was happening when it happened. Um, and I felt very ambushed and attacked and I was young. So now would I have handled it better? I don't know, maybe, but I felt like they had already made up their mind. So I was going to give nothing. 
Okay. And so like they had basically asked me if I was like hooking up with anybody or like doing anything like that. And I said, no, because I wasn't. And they took that as me trying to hide my sin and lying because I was emailing this guy, you know, who was a first year. And, and I was just like, that's not what you asked me. That's not, you know what I mean? I'm answering the question that you asked me. That wasn't what you asked me at all. <laughs> and, and I knew that they had already kind of made up their mind. And the pastor looked at me and he told me, it's nothing personal. And I said, it should be. And I left. And they told me that I had 24 hours to get my shit and get out. Um, my family at the time lived overseas. And I told them that. And they knew that. And I said, nobody's home. I said, the like, my house is winterized. Um, I was like, the water's off. Like, it's the heat's not on. I'd have to, like, go and turn everything back on. And so, like, if we were coming home and we knew we'd be home, we would have somebody turn everything back on us like a week in advance because otherwise you go home and it's absolutely freezing and there's no water. So they told me I had 24 hours to get my stuff. I couldn't even fit all of my stuff and probably I packed probably terrible, but I couldn't even fit everything in my, um, in my truck. And they told me that I was not allowed to talk to my roommates and they were not allowed to talk to me and I was not allowed to say goodbye to them at all. And they even told uh, Chelsea, my best friend, to that she wasn't allowed to come see me. She did anyway. You know, she came in and she saw me and stuff. And she was like, what happened? And I'm like trying to explain to her what happened. And she's like, there has. And she's like, that's like, that doesn't make sense. You know, that's it. And I don't even know what they were told on their end. And I know it was way more salacious and, it, you know, than it really, than it really was. And, um, you know, I remember having to like call my parents and it was the middle of the night there and they were sleeping and, you know, and I'm like, I got to go home and I have no money to go home because we're not working. I need gas. Like I lived 13 hours away and, you know, and I'm just like, I got to go to my house. Um, and I just remember them not really caring um and i did have a staff member like a support staff member tell me that like i could come stay at her house or whatever but i was just like where was this compassion in my meeting like no bitch um but my one of my friends from home had you know randomly hit me up and stuff and i and i remember i told her that i was coming home and these are friendships that, you know, they told me to cut off, that they told me these people didn't love me and they didn't care about me because they weren't Christians and because they didn't understand what I was going through and the, and the decisions I was making with my life. You know, they called me and I said, hey, I'm coming home. I need you to do me a huge favor. Go to my house, you know, get the keys. I need you to turn the heat on. I need you to light a fire. I need you to turn the water on. Like, you know, do all this stuff for me because I'm, I'm going to be home tonight. And they were like, oh my God, of, of course, like we're going to have everybody over, you know, and everything. And, you know, when I got to my house, there's this party waiting for me, you know, and just people being so excited that I was home and so happy just to see me. 
and to talk to me and be around me, you know, and they didn't know what I had gone through and they didn't know I just got kicked out of school. And honestly, they didn't really care. You know, um, they just made me feel so loved and so at home. And, um, you know, and I'll, I'll never, I'll never forget that. And, and I'll always remember that because I was shunned and nobody talked to me, you know, and then I had people who were mad at me who I, you know, would ha- had to apologize to because they thought that I really just left and did not want to talk to them at all. You know, the people who were under me, the, um, the first years in my house and things like that and my roommates, you know, and that was hard on people and they didn't think about that. You know, I ended up getting real sick when I got home too, because obviously it was freezing and, you know, there was no heat in my house and it took a few days for it to warm, you know, all the way up and stuff. And it was just a a really, really rough time for me. And it took me a really long time to get myself back. And for a long time, this is my biggest regret is going to master's commission. It's what I regret. I wish I would have just stayed in school and, you know, and never, and never even went there. And, and I feel like those years are wasted. Um, but then at the same time, I learned a lot, um, about myself. I learned a lot about the Bible. Um, we studied it a lot and (laughs) which pushed me further away from religion, if I'm very honest with you, but you know, it, it was such a dark time for me and it took so long for me to get back to where I was a confident, strong person again, because I was just so, so beaten down and, you know, through therapy and through, um, you know, I love, uh, Brene Brown. She is a social worker just like I am. Um, and she's a researcher and she talks a lot about just, um, vulnerability and how to heal she talks a lot about trauma, you know, and what we went through was a traumatic experience, you know, and a lot of us are trauma bonded together. And it's even still hard for people to talk about now because of what they went through. And we're talking about this being in, you know, 2006, you know, 2005 and stuff like that. And People still feel scared to come out and talk about it. People feel scared to talk about their experiences and, you know, or people feel like they're still in such a raw place that they're not even ready to talk about it without bursting into tears. You know, I wrote this out last year and it's it's taken me about a year to kind of get to the place where I could talk about it and get through it and not be a ball of mess because some of the stuff was really so hurtful and I don't never shared really all the ins and outs of of my time there and of my leaving there as well and you know it's a very very raw vulnerable thing to put out there in the world and I couldn't expect other people to want to share their stories and talk about their trauma and also their healing journeys and, you know, what they're doing now, if I didn't share mine, you know, um, and my deconstruction journey is, is still ongoing. There was a lot of years where I hated Christians. I hated God. I hated the church and I was really angry and bitter. 
And, you know, I've come to a place now of realizing that a lot of times other people are doing things to you because of what's being done to them and people don't really know any better. There's a lot of forgiveness that I had to give myself for being used by them and, and doing those same things and hurting people. Um, you know, a lot of forgiveness of myself for being stupid, for being involved in this, you know, um, for going in the first place and, and, and for not being strong enough at the beginning, just to say, no, I'm not going to go there, you know? So there was just so much healing that needed to take place all around. And, you know, and it's still, I'm still not done. And there's still definitely more, more work to do, but thank you so much for listening to my story. And I hope you stay tuned and listen to the rest of the series of my culty college.